Well, good morning. And this place just about split in half whenever all the kids left, which is which is a, a blessing. That's a that's a good thing when you have young blood uh, that's in a church. Um, that's a that's a huge blessing, and I don't take that for granted. Um, my name is Jared Toon. Uh, I I know uh, a few of you. A couple of your faces are, are a little unfamiliar to me, but but um, um, Mike, uh, Mingy, and I we've been friends since. Uh, college, we both went to Mac together, um, probably about ten years ago, or maybe not quite that long, but but pretty close, about ten years ago. <laughs> Ooh, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird to say. But uh, and and then we after that we both went off to four year colleges, and he went his way, and I went my way, and uh, it was really neat watching uh, with with uh, watching Mike grow up. And, and if you hear him tell his story. And this is his testimony, it's not my testimony, but he would tell you that during that time when we were going to MACD, that uh, we were both on the Christian Student Union leadership team at the time, even though he would tell you that, that he didn't really feel like he was walking with the Lord. Um, uh, and it was just kind of a thing that he, that he was doing. And, and uh, he, kinda, he got put on that team because he had leadership uh, ability. And that ability was nobody else wanted to do it. So, so he was there. Um, but uh, but but as we all we all kind of went our separate ways and went to four year school and and uh, did our thing um, uh, while he was at Rolla, it was obvious as the Lord would begin to do some things in him and uh, and then he came back uh, to Farmington. He was working there and he would call me and uh, just to chat and he would just talk about the you know what church he'd been getting involved in and stuff and and at that point he got into Parkland Chapel. Uh, but this time I was back home and he was in the Parkland Chapel and he was just. He was growing like a weed. It, it was just obvious that he just had this this desire to serve the Lord, and so he uh, he ultimately he, he uh, felt like he needed to follow the Lord in obedience and baptism, and so he was baptized uh, just as a way to show the world that uh, I'm in. Uh, this is this is the real thing. And, and then uh, to watch him grow there at Parkland Chapel uh, was just a blessing. And then, and then now uh, turning into this, now he's here um, serving in this way, and so it's really awesome. Uh, to get to to watch that, and uh, he and I, we've been praying every every Thursday for the last, uh, I guess, a couple of years now, uh, probably two two and a half years now, maybe P- pushing three years, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how long it's been, but but uh, it was just been it's been neat along the way. Just a couple of years ago, he called me and said, "Hey, uh, we're thinking about planting a church in Arcadia Valley. Can you pray with me?" And so we prayed about that, and then every new step you know took place, and we were praying through it, and uh, and so just to get to come down here and uh, and see. The stuff that we've been praying about uh, for the last two or three years has been—it's uh, it's pretty neat. It's it's amazing to be here uh, and to get to watch this, and so this is pretty cool. And um, we continue to pray uh, for those things. Uh, but anyway, that's who I am. I'm Jared. Uh, I'm I'm at Parkland Chapel right now with my wife and I. Just began attending there recently. Prior to that, we were uh, serving at a, a little church in Fredericktown for the last several years, and uh, which is my home church. And now we're. Now we're at Parkland hanging out with those guys, and so uh, hopefully you'll see a little bit of our faces a little bit more often in the next in the coming uh, months and, and years and whatnot. So, uh, if you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn them to Luke chapter fifteen. Luke chapter fifteen. And I was talking with a buddy the other day. That the fun thing about being a visiting speaker is that uh, I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. I get to pick my passage. I get to come up here and just tear the place apart and just say whatever the heck I want to say and get out of here, and Mike has to come in and clean up my mess. And so, and so that's, that's great, but I'll try not to make too much of a mess on the pulpit 
metaphorically speaking this morning. Um, so Luke chapter 15, this morning I, I want to talk to you who are here, uh, that are involved in this church, and you're serving, uh, or, or you've been thinking about getting more involved, or you'd like to, but you don't know how, uh, or, or, or you don't know if you're really ready for that kind of commitment, and by the way, I, you know, that, that was kind of neat with, with the announcements, there's plenty of opportunities there, there's no shortage of, of opportunities to serve. First of all, let me, let me say to those of you who have dug your heels in, uh, and, and uh, got your hands dirty in serving this church, Thank you. Thank you for your service. I'm encouraged, encouraged by the sight of believers working quietly and consistently in the church and plodding along and doing the work that, that the Lord has, has set them aside to do. Uh, some of you have given up some evenings and weekends to help serve in different ways in this church, uh, from carpentry to uh, construction to working with uh, kids or keeping the coffee hot or whatever that is uh, that God has laid on your heart to contribute something just as simple as seeing a need and saying, hey, I can do that. I can, I can help out with that, and you jumped right in. Thank you for that. Um, Hebrews 10, verse 24, says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Provoke one another to love and to good works. And my hope is to be able to encourage and to provoke and prod others around me uh, unto love and good works. Uh, and that, that's the kind of atmosphere that I think the church can be. And, the, and which reminds me of another passage as well in Isaiah chapter 6, in which the prophet Isaiah had this vision of being in the courts, uh, uh, the, being in the court of God, being in his high, uh, you know, like in the palace in the courts of the Lord. And he saw these angels, these seraphim, uh, flying back and forth, and they're calling out to one another from the throne of, uh, around the throne of God. And in verse 3 in Isaiah 6, he writes this. It says, and one cried to another, talking about these, uh, these angels, these seraphim calling out to one another. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And you can just imagine this visual of, of what, what Isaiah was seeing. And it was so, for him it was, it was awe-inspiring. Actually, it was kind of terrifying for him when he realized that he was in the presence of a holy God. And here he was, an un, a very unholy unclean man and he felt like he was about to be judged for that uh, and, and God showed him mercy uh, in that but, but, but the thing that I want to gather out of that is that ain't the, these angels were, were crying out to one another back and forth and, and it always had this feeling of, of a kind of holy peer pressure you know what I mean and, but, but it's motivated out of a love for and an awe for and a reverence for God that spurs one another on. Holy, holy, hey, did you hear what I said? Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And serving in a church can, I think, can remind us even of this atmosphere that exists in the spiritual realm. And perhaps this is what it could look like or what it ought to look like. Uh, you know, just the, like the angels were calling out one to another, spurring one on, one another on into worship. And what an atmosphere that would be to be in the presence of God that way with, with other fellow worshipers and fellow servants of Christ. And I wonder if that's the kind of atmosphere that God longs for us to be able to have as a body of Christ. Not, not tearing one another down or basking in pity parties, but, but and applying a sort of positive spiritual peer pressure to one another, provoking one another to love and to good works. The angel provokes, provoked one another in worship, and, and we ought to be provoking one another at, as in heaven, so on earth, uh, provoking one another into love and good works. 
Um, but sometimes that, that energy and that motivation just isn't there. And that zeal, that, it, it just isn't there. Sometimes we begin to feel the weight and the pressure of, of our service in the church. And, and um, personal issues get in the way, and family issues get in the way, and spiritual dryness begins to creep in. And for some, uh, for some folks it results in uh, some church burnout. That happens. And it's so discouraging to go through and to watch other people go through that. And sometimes church leaders, um, I know as a church leader, sometimes if they're not careful, they can put a lot of pressure on people within a church to keep performing and keep putting out more and more until they have nothing left to sacrifice. And then they make them feel guilty for not serving. One thing that, that I've really appreciated about being a part of Parkland Chapel, um, and, and this is something I think that, that uh, Matt, Mike Harrison, I think, has passed on, uh, has tried to teach and instill into uh, into Mike Mingy uh, as he set out to begin planting AV Chapel here is to let people serve freely out of out of uh, the abundance of joy and willingness, free willingness to serve, and not under compulsion and not under guilt. And, uh, and I, I really appreciate that that atmosphere. And, and there's nothing there's nothing more rewarding. You probably figured this out by now. There's nothing more rewarding and even more fun. Than, than serving the Lord in an area in which you're gifted and, and enjoying what you're doing, enjoying it. And, and one of the questions becomes for us, how can I serve with joy? How can I serve with joy? And so this morning we're going we're gonna to look at a very familiar passage in Scripture and kind of see what we can glean from it uh, for the Christian worker. And so we're going to look in Luke chapter 15. Um, I've been encouraged by, in the past by a study um, of the parable uh, of what we call the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, and uh, it was it was taught by uh, the study was taught by Tim Keller. And if you're a book reader, uh, I meant to throw a graphic up there, but I forgot to. But I would encourage you to pick up his book called The Prodigal God, The Prodigal God. It's a really interesting book, and I would encourage you to pick it up and read it if you're a reader. I want to rob just a few thoughts uh, from from Keller's study on this passage. A little bit, and, and we'll kind of mix in some of our own stuff here this morning. Um, we often see when we look at that story, of the prodigal God, or the prodigal son, excuse me. And all we kind, all we kind of, uh, we're going to read this passage just in just a second. But if we're familiar with that passage, we we uh, we kind of see the prodigal, this young son, as the antagonist, as an antagonist in the story. Like he's the he's that dynamic character that we always want to pay attention to because it seems like most of the verses when Jesus tells his parable and we read about it, most of the focus is on the younger son. Um, but, but as we read in the context, we, we remember that Jesus isn't speaking this parable to a bunch of young, rebellious, prodigal types, but to the religious church-going types. Remember, he, well, Jesus will often use parables. When I grew up, uh, I was taught that a parable is simply a heavenly, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You know, Jesus would use a story in order to try to illustrate some spiritual point, and he was always spot on for for whatever his his audience was, and and he he always knew his audience, and he always knew what kind of parable to use. But he wasn't speaking this parable to a bunch of young, rebellious, prodigal types, uh, but to the religious and the church-going types, the ones who. Grew up in church, the, 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 the Jews, the Pharisees, and no doubt um, many of you may be able to put yourself into one of these two categories. You would say either yeah, I was the prodigal type or I was the, the upstanding church going type. You, know, you may be able to put yourself in one of those or somewhere in between. 
These Pharisees, the, the religious types, had been criticizing Jesus for receiving sinners and for, for eating with them, the prostitutes and the, uh, and the, the tax collectors and the, the like, uh, and the drunkards, and Jesus would, would eat with them. And that was a huge deal. That was a huge deal because culturally, to, uh, for them to eat with someone was a way of saying, you're in, you're family, I receive you in everything that you are, I receive you. It's a very intimate thing to, to invite someone into your space and to actually enjoy a meal with them. It's a very intimate thing. Even in, in our culture today, we can understand this because how are our restaurants uh, set up? I mean, we go down to the Mexican restaurant down the road, how is it set up? It's not one big table, right, where everybody sits down at the same table. No, it's, it's a bunch of individual tables, so you can kind of get off and have some semblance of privacy with you and your family and your friends to get together, and, and we're eating together. You're not eating with those folks over there at the other table. And you remember in high school, uh, you, you, know, you didn't just eat with anybody, right? You had your, you know, when I was in high school, we had, I had my table and with my friends, and we sat at that same table, and sometimes we were, we were even like old Baptists, we each had our own had our own chair, you know, that we would sit in, you know, and, and that was that was our it was our thing because um, it's a very intimate thing uh, to to share a meal with somebody. And that's why you're always seeing these commercials encouraging families to eat family meals together, right? Um, and because intimacy is increased and, and and bonds are built over meals. And so this passage actually starts in in chapter fifteen, verses one and two. It says then all the tax collectors. And the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So some of these Jews were offended that Jesus was being so gracious as to eat with sinners and with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and just the type of, the, of people that you might associate, or you might not associate, rather, with being a, a godly man or a godly woman. Uh, and so keep in mind, by the way, just because Jesus sat with such people didn't mean that he was condoning their sin. He wasn't saying, I'm okay with what you're doing. Uh, and so we don't want our attitudes, uh, or rather we always want our attitudes uh, towards those who, you know, when we're inviting people to church or we're telling them about the Lord and we want them uh, to come around and invite them to fellowship. You know, we want our attitude to be, come just as you are. But but don't don't expect to leave that way, you know. That, that's sometimes maybe implied more than expressed. Come, we express, come just as you are, but we're going to imply, uh, and ultimately, uh, don't expect to leave that way. Because when Jesus gets a hold of you, He never leaves you the same way that He found you. Jesus was ministering to these people with a view to lead them to repentance for their sins, not, not to encourage them to continue participating in their sins. So <clears throat> here Jesus tells three parables. Luke chapter 15, you can read it down, read down through it, and there's three parables that Jesus is sharing. The, the parable of the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and the lost son. So you can see the, the, the lost theme. And Jesus was trying to give them the idea that, man, when something is lost and it gets found, what do you do? You celebrate. You know, you Pharisees, you're not celebrating when, when something that's lost gets found. I'm receiving these folks. Uh, and, and they're they're receiving me, and they're hearing what I'm saying, and there's repentance that's taking place. You know, uh, rejoice once that which is lost is found. Don't don't complain and, and gripe and be jealous. And so here that we're about to read here, Jesus tells uh, the the story the pro, the story of the of the parable of the uh, the lost the prodigal son, uh, or more specifically, the lost sons, the lost sons. 
I'll explain what I mean in a moment. But I, I say that because this is a parable about a father who has not one, but two sons. Two sons that turn out to be wayward and and in their own way are found in some in, in one way or another are found in some type of rebellion against the father. Okay? And so we're going to explore that as we read. So let's read um, Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11 and 12. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. So the parable starts out with a certain man that has two sons. The younger son, who is by this time is now of age, and is able to make uh, these kinds of decisions, fed up with living at home uh, and, and working for dad, says, Dad, give me my inheritance. I want my inheritance. His son was saying, I'm tired of living here under your roof. I hate the rules here. Nobody understands me. Give me my, give me my inheritance. I'm out. I'm out the door. I'm done with this. And so this isn't just some, uh, just an 18-year-old high school graduate saying, man, I'm, just, I'm ready to get out of this one-horse town and just go see the world. It's, it's more than just, more than that. This son was, by this single act, disowning himself from the family. He was, he was behaving in a very dishonorable way towards his father. I don't want anything to do with you or the way that you raised me. Father, I just want to live my own way. I just want to do my own thing. Um, Proverbs 1, verse uh, 8 and 9 says, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. The, the young son in this parable didn't want to hear any of that. He didn't want that. He just wanted to live his own way. And yet, even knowing his, his son's youthfulness and, and knowing his youthful foolishness and his wicked heart, this father is, is a gentleman and he graciously concedes and gives this young man his inheritance. Um, question. Who received a portion of the inheritance? We just read that. The younger of them said to his father, uh, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. So who received their inheritance? Just the younger son? Both of them. Both of them received their inheritance. The older one didn't ask for it. He received it. Wasn't supposed to get it yet. Didn't ask for it, but he received it anyway. And, and so the older son, who obviously, uh, as we're going to read on later, obviously intended to stay with the father and to work the family business, whatever that was, um, and no doubt they're wealthy. You know, as we kind of read through the story, we're kind of finding, okay, this is a wealthy father and a wealthy family. Uh, this young man's going to stick around, and he would have received a double portion of the inheritance because he was the oldest. That was, that was Jewish culture. That was Jewish law. And in this case, he obviously would have received all that real estate property and all those stationary things like that because the younger son, he just wanted the green cash. You know, he was ready to do anything that was liquid so he can split and, and, and leave town, right? Before we go too far, because we're going to kind of veer away from, from the parable just a little bit this morning, but not too far. But who, who is this parable about? Who, who is Jesus talking to? We just said this. He's not talking to the prodigal types. He's talking about to the, the religious, to the Pharisees, to the, uh, to the Jewish people. The Jewish people. Jesus had been sitting and eating with these prodigal types, and they were, they were Jews who knew the law of God. They knew the commands of God. They've been brought up hearing the commands of God, knowing that they were the seed of Abraham, 
And yet they ignored that reality, and they, they ignored and denied their heritage, and they chose to live in sin. And so these were represented by the younger brother. They were always sons, but they, they rebelled. Okay, And so that's why this parable can fit, can work with these. And then there was the Pharisees represented by the older brother. They didn't ignore the law, but in fact, they took great pride in not only how well they could adhere to the law, at least on the outside, externally, not so much on the inside. Jesus kind of called them out on that, uh, about the, the evil that was going on on the inside. But on the outside, not only did they appear to be following the law, but would actually come up with more laws to obey, to kind of pad it, and would insist that this is the standard by which all of Israel must abide by. Okay, They were the rule, not only the rule uh, keepers in their, in their sight, but they were also rule makers. They thought that was their job. And so they were becoming jealous when they saw how Jesus had been showing mercy and grace to those Jews who were openly, blatantly living in sin. And so this is why Jesus told this parable. So Jesus is talking to Jews using a very Jewish parable. We are Gentiles. All right? We're the Gentile sinners. Okay? Uh, and so there are some ways in which this parable doesn't apply to us. And yet, we're going to see some ways in which it can apply directly to Directly to us. And I think that if it didn't apply to us, then then God wouldn't have inspired the gospel writer to include that in this account. But we know that all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. And and so he included this. So I would say this. Sometimes well-meaning, believing Christians can completely lose sight of the mission of God. The mission to spread the gospel and to win people to himself because of his kindness, which leads to repentance no matter what their past or present circumstances are. We lose that mission. We can lose sight of that. And we sometimes like to keep our churches filled with a certain type of respectable people that, that aren't too messed up, and they got a little bit of issues, but they're not too messed up, and maybe make a certain dollar amount um, in their paycheck every month. But, but that wasn't Jesus' deal. He, he ministered to everyone. To everyone. And, and offered, often attracted some very shady characters along the way. And, and here's what, what I've learned. Uh, and something tells me that you, you all have learned this. Uh, and Mike's told me some interesting stories. That when you start preaching the gospel, you're going to attract all kinds of people. You're going to attract all kinds of people. All right? You may get some interesting cases, walk through the door. And guess what? That's supposed to happen. That is what's supposed to happen. So when that happens, don't freak out. Don't be like the Jews. Be like, whoa, what are they doing here? The gospel attracts all kinds of people. And you have no idea what God has planned, the work that He has planned to work into the individual lives that may walk in through the door, that come under the hearing of the gospel. Uh, So so keep the mission of God in mind when that happens. So uh, verse 13 says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So this younger son was in direct rebellion against his father. By the way, this word prodigal uh, simply means, and I looked this up in Webster's the other day, simply means given to extravagant expenditures. Lavish, wasteful, that, that type of thing. That's, that's what prodigal means. This young man in rebellion to the otherwise frugal and sensible and disciplined life that his father had brought him up in, um, just wanted to go see what the world had to offer and to live it up and to waste his father's hard-earned money and just to party hardy. That was his, that was his plan. 
And, and maybe some of you here uh, can relate. Maybe you were this type of rebel in your younger days towards your family and your story is marked by this kind of chaos um, and divisiveness and rebellion and wanting to go your own way. Um, I've, I've known a lot of young people and having served in, in youth ministry for a little while, I, I've known a lot of young people who grew up in Christian homes. They went to church, but when they came of age, they were bitter. They grew bitter and rebellious against their parents and against God, and they split, and they're gone. And perhaps this may have been the case uh, for some of you, and perhaps uh, spiritually you were a rebel against God, and, and you can mark that time in your life, even, even so much to the point of wasting the blessings that you've been blessed with and, and the truth that you've been taught when, when you were younger. But the thing about being a prodigal, as we're about to learn, is that it never lasts. It never lasts. Uh, a fool and his money are soon parted. And we're going to read that in uh, verse uh, 14. Verse 14 says, But when he had spent all, fool and his money are soon parted, right? When he had spent all, all the money was gone. Friends were gone. The girls were gone. Everything that he had uh, been building up there, it was gone. He spent it. Then there arose a severe famine in the land. It began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent himself and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with, um, with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger?" I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Sin is costly. It's costly. And some people may learn that early. They may learn that early. But typically the prodigal type, um, like we see in the story, has to get to the very end of the rope. You know? before they realize the train wreck that their life has become. They go through that cycle, that cycle of insanity, and finally they, they, hit, um, they hit the end of the rope, and they're going, what on earth have I done? What have I done to my life? And they've got no place else to go. So this young man does what perhaps any of us probably would have done in the same situation. He begins to, began to devise a plan, right? He began to devise a plan to dig himself out of this problem. He said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to tell Dad, Dad, I messed up bad, and I no longer deserve to be called your son. True or not true? Well, it's, it's true. He's right. He, he, he has messed up. He does no longer deserve to be called his son. Please, and he said, you know, please make me one of your hired servants. So the son, you know, he's got that in his head. He starts back home. You can imagine him rehearsing those lines on the way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. And he's just—he's, you know—he's—he's he's really he's nervous about this encounter he's about to have with his father. And now read verse twenty. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, saw him coming, and he had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. The idea is just just grabbed him, gave him a big old bear hug, and kissed him. Now, if you're a Jewish listener, and you hear this, you wouldn't have seen this coming. You would not have seen this coming in this parable. Because what it's supposed to look like is, when he saw him coming a great way off, the father stood on the doorstep with his arms crossed, tapping his foot, saying, Mm-hmm, 
you know, and, and ready to really let this son have it, right? That's what's about to happen. That's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. In fact, at this point of the story, in Jewish law and custom, it would have been entirely within the father's right to have his son arrested and, and publicly rebuked and punished for the disgrace that he showed to his father. Not only in demand, demanding his inheritance the way that he did, and then going out and wasting it on, on riotous living, on prodigal living, but then coming back and asking for mercy, asking for more, saying, give me a job, Dad. Uh, you know, I, how many of us deserve God's mercy? None of us. I don't. But instead, what do we see the father do? Rather than his son having to walk all the way through town and receiving all the scorn of the townspeople all saying, well, look what the cat dragged in. Old, uh, old brother so-and-so that, that, that uh, tore into his dad and took his inheritance and left and disgraced his father. Instead of that, this father stops all those mouths by running to the son, embracing this young man who had disgraced him, and then saying, clothe him, put a ring on him, he's my son. Which are, which are all symbols of being reinstated back into the family. I mean, th- this son came into town, uh, you know, and he said, Father, uh, I've, did what he, what he had rehearsed, Father, I, I've sinned uh, against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. He didn't even get to finish his sentence. Well, it was like, the father was like, stop with that nonsense. Come, you know, bring this young man, or put a ring on his finger, put a robe on him, and go, go kill the fatted calf and, and let's eat it. For this my son which was dead, is now alive. The father shows great mercy to this younger son. I think I jumped ahead of myself, but let's read 21. And the son said to him, Father, hey, I sure did. <laughs> and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. Sound like a song, doesn't it? And they began to be merry. So the father not only receives his son who had been running from him, but, but even says, oh no, you're not just a servant. I'm not going to take you in as a servant. You are my son. So many prodigals today who have been running from the Lord want to come to him as a servant. And yet the father says, you are more than a servant to me. You are my son. You're my daughter. And uh, and we read this and we're... And we're overwhelmed by the goodness of this father and freely offering complete restoration um, for us. The father offers us complete restoration into the family of God when we come to him this way. And when a man or woman having, having been in that broken relationship with God, we came out of the womb broken. We came out condemned. Uh, if we believe not, we're condemned already. So, so uh, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because we were already in condemnation. But, but when we uh, are in that, that condemnation and we come to the realization of the holiness of God that we just got done singing about a minute ago, and the fact that He's worthy to be loved, and He's worthy to be obeyed, and He's worthy to be served, and then He comes and He or she comes to God saying, Lord, I confess my sin. And I repent of it and I lay it down in my guilt. And then confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised Him from the dead. And the Bible says, if you do this, you will be saved. And at that confession from the heart and from the mouth, the Holy Spirit which has been drawing you uh, near now comes into you and makes His home in you and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. The idea that 
that we, you know, we think about the idea of coming home. Coming home to God means not only coming to God, and then God says, now I'm going to come into you. Not only are you coming into me now, but now I'm going to come into you. I'm going to indwell you. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens when we come to Christ, when we confess Him, and when we are saved. That's what happens. Question, how do I know if I'm a child of God? Or a son or a daughter of God? Um, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. And you are welcome to join me. Romans chapter 8. I want to look at verse 15. We're going to read just a few verses and then we're going to talk about it for just a minute. And we'll get back to our parable. Romans 8 verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So how do I know if I'm a child of God? How do I know if I'm a son or a daughter of God? Well, I would look at those verses and I would say two things. Number one, how how can I know this? Is number one, you recognize... And you acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ over your life. There is in you a desire to follow and to obey Jesus as well as you can by the power of the Spirit. This, Granted, this will be imperfectly executed. Okay, You probably won't experience perfection in this lifetime. And if you do... Uh, please call me. I want to come and see what that looks like. I, re- I want to learn from you. I want you to, to, to mentor and disciple me. I want to see what that looks like. But most likely, you're not going to uh, obtain to this kind of uh, uh, perfection uh, in this lifetime. But there will be a very real trajectory. You'll be in that direction. You'll be in that pursuit. You'll be headed towards that. And, a pers- and you'll be under a pursuit of obedience to Christ. Because deep in your being is a clear, is a very clear sense. Because this is what the Holy Spirit does in you. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that Jesus is Lord. He is boss. When I, when I talk to small kids and I teach them about what it means that Jesus is Lord, I tell them it means He's the boss of you. You know, you ever, you ever said, you know, when, you, when you're a kid you hear somebody, you know, one of them, they'll, they'll say to another kid, quit telling me what to do, you're not the boss of me. Well, Jesus is the boss of you. And, and and there's the Holy Spirit puts in you a, this this understanding that Jesus is my Lord, He is the boss of me, and I relinquish my rights to Him, and I seek my sense of identity uh, in Him. I find my meaning in life and my sense of purpose in Christ, and I desire to walk in obedience to Jesus. And, and I would say this, that if that's not there, if that desire, that recognition, that acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that He is your boss, that He is your Lord, and that uh, you are to be walking, uh, seeking, desiring, pursuing obedience to Him, imperfectly executed but with a definite traje- trajectory and pursuit in that direction, if that's not there, then I, I would have to say that you're not saved. That the Holy Spirit is not indwelling in you, if that, if that sense is not there. So, a lordship, an acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And number two, how do I know if I'm a child of God? You, you recognize God as your father and not as a slave driver. 
What did he, what did he say in Romans? He said, uh, he said God is he's not giving you a spirit of, of fear. Oops, sorry, my, I lost my verse there. It uh, says, yeah, in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says, you, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. What did the, what did the Father say in the parable? Welcome back, young man. Now get to work, slave. No, was, was, no that's not what he did. That's not what he said. Did, did that son have to scurry out to the fields once he came in and he received his marching orders from his father and then run out to the fields and live out the rest of his days as a slave, worried that if he didn't please his father that he might be sold down the river to some other master? No. That's what a, that's what a slave fears. A slave fears, I've got to obey my, my master because if I don't, I could be beaten or punished severely. Or he might decide that I'm not worth it and he might sell me to some other more cruel master down the river. I am to him, I'm just, a, I'm just property, I'm just goods. But when, you, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it puts a spirit in you that doesn't say, Oh man, God is a slave driver and if I don't obey him, then he's going to send me down the river. He's going to sell me to another master. He's going to sell me to my old master. Satan, and, and so I've got to work hard. I've got to do good to keep him pleased. No, that's not the spirit that God puts in us. He puts in a spirit in us that goes, oh, God is my father. He's my Abba. He's my daddy. And you know, my dad can beat up your dad. This is the father that, that, I, that I serve. He doesn't have to fear being, sl- uh, being sold. He says, I'm a son. I'm a free man. If you're a truly a child of God, then the Holy Spirit that God put in you bears witness with your spirit that you are His and you can have a confidence in your sonship and your daughtership as a child of God. In reality, is God a just judge? Yes, He is. And, and He will judge the world. That will happen. But if you're a child of the judge, you don't tend to, to fear the judge the way that a criminal, the way that a sinner fears the judge. Right? How do, you, how do you view God? How do you see God? How do you understand? How, what does your spirit bear witness in you about who God is? Is He still in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit a vindictive, judge, judgmental, uh, angry uh, judge of a God? Or do you recognize Him as your, as your Father? I, I don't know what your personal relationship is for some of you all with, uh, with your earthly father. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of coming in here. I, I don't know all y'all's stories. And, um, but, but I have a pretty good relationship with, with my dad. And if somebody asked me as a young boy, do you fear your father? Are you afraid of your dad? Well, um, yes, I do. I fear that if I disobey, uh, there'll be consequences. I'll get the belt. But am I afraid? Like, am, am I really... Like, just terrified, afraid of my dad? No, absolutely not. He's my dad, and I know that he loves me. And, and he, anytime I ever got a spanking growing up, it was always followed up with, you're my son, and I love you, and nothing will change that. Now get to your room and quit crying. Yeah, you know, but, but it was that. That's not always the case. I understand that. For some, their experience with an earthly father was someone who was distant and uninvolved at best. Uh, or, or even abusive at worst, uh, emotionally, physically, verbally. And, and some folks I know have a hard time seeing God as a loving father because they never had a loving earthly father. I, I know a, a young man whose father was always distant and uninvolved. He was always away. He was always on the road. And uh, this young man, coincidentally, was struggling with his faith in God. And he didn't understand how God could love him and be a holy judge at the same time. And this idea of, of God being a loving father was just, 
it was just a foreign concept to him, and he was just rattling on to me about all this one day, and I and I'd heard all it before, and he was just just going on, and so and so finally I stopped him. I said, "Hey man, let's read some Psalms for a little while, you know," and uh, and I read to him Psalm sixty eight, and, uh, and and I got down to verse five, which says, um, "A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy in his holy habitation, a father of the fatherless," and. Um, I didn't know what the Lord was going to do with that passage. I just read it to him. I shared it with him. You know, I shared many passages with him, and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but but um, somehow the Lord used that. And a few weeks later, that young man sent me a message on Facebook and said, "You know what? Um, God isn't distant and detached. He loves me, and he's. I can tell. I know now that he's been pursuing me." Like the father in our parable, he saw the son coming a great way off, and he took off for him and embraced him. And he said, you know, the Father, the Lord has been pursuing me and now I want to pursue him. I'm in. And from then on, this young man has been following hard after the Lord and finding joy in obedience. And when he messes up, he's learning how to confess uh, and repent of those things quickly uh, so he can continue on pursuing obedience up to the point that, that he messaged me yesterday and said, hey man, you gave me this book uh, and I took it to, and I've lost it. The book has disappeared. And I was like, that's no big deal. If somebody finds it, you know, it would be a blessing to them. You know, it was, you know, I didn't really need it. It wasn't one that I've been reading anyway. So I said, that's no problem. Somebody else finds it. Maybe they'll pick it up and they'll read it and they'll get the blessing out of it. He said, yeah, I know. That's what I figured. I just wanted to be honest with you. And he's got this desire. He wants to be honest and forthright and walk in the light about everything. Because for him, this is what it means to walk in the joy of the Lord. is walking in the light about everything. Confessing. His, his sins, and that, that's, that's been his experience of what it is to walk uh, as a son, as a child of God. Having God as a father gives us a reassurance of a sonship that won't be taken away and frees us up to serve out of gladness as a son or as a daughter, not out of fear as a slave. So let's go back to Luke 15. Now, the older brother, and, and it's, it's, getting, it's getting late, so I'll, I'll try to keep you uh, too long, but uh, the older brother shows his true true heart when this younger brother returned. Look at verse twenty five. We'll go ahead and finish off this this passage. It says now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. They're partying on. The young younger son has come home, and they're throwing a big party for him. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "Your brother has come." And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. This older son was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. He had to leave his own party. A rich man had to leave his house, his own party, to in a way dishonor himself by leaving his house to go beg with his older son. And... Um, uh, where was it? I lost it. So he, the father came out and pleaded with him in verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. I, I've been a rule keeper. Dad, I've, I've, I've followed your commandments all these times. And I never did all this stuff that this guy did. And yet you never gave me... A young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, notice he doesn't say this brother of mine, but this son of yours has come, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
yeah, you're going to give me so much as a goat just so I can go have a party with my buddies. But you, you kill the fatted calf for this son that, that's disgraced and dishonored you, Father. So how does the older son respond to his little brother returning home? With joy and gladness and celebration? No. No. With, he says, what gives? I served all these years. And that, that's, there's just some jealousy there's some very real jealousy that's taking place here. And by the way, this is more than just a simple jealousy. Okay, now, You can un- understand the obvious, you know, what's going on here. But this whole matter of the father restoring the younger son is actually going to cost the older son. I mean, the inheritance, remember we already said the inheritance has already been meted out. It's already been divided between the two sons. The older son got his double portion as an older son. And the younger son got, you know, I guess some cash and some things, and he hit the road and, and wasted it. Later on, we're going to read the father say to this older son, all that I have is already yours. Which means that anything the father gives to the younger son, the cloak, the ring, a fatted calf, um, a tent to live in, a job in the family business, a salary, all that is going to have to come out of whose pocket? The older son, right? All this stuff is going to have to come out of his inheritance. So guess who's losing out in this? The older son. He has to share his inheritance with this no-good, prodigal brother of his. And what Jesus wants to point out is that the older son is not happy about it at all. So he's just a little bit bitter about that. And that's part of it. So the jealousy is part of it. But I would say that the other part of it has to do with the fact that for all these years, this older son has been serving and has been working for his father. And now he's feeling like he's getting cheated because he's not getting what he deserves. This, this younger son is not getting what he... He's getting grace. He's getting grace and mercy. He didn't deserve all that stuff. And you go, he's going, you're putting this younger son on the same standing with me. Your son who has obeyed you all these years. And so when the father hears the older son is refusing to come in, again, he, you know, he does that thing. He goes out there uh, and, and begins to plead and to beg with him. I mean, isn't this father showing this incredible mercy and compassion to both these sons? Neither one of them deserve it. This older son, man, he's just being a jerk. To his dad right now, he didn't, uh, and he didn't deserve the grace he's getting showed, but he is. That's the way the father is to us. Now, here's the question: Why did the older son work for the father all those years? Verse 29. So these many years I have been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. So finally, the motivation of the older son comes out. He lost his joy serving the Father. He lost it. He had no joy. He hadn't been serving his Father for all these years because he was a son. He was serving so that he could earn something. I want a goat. You know, I, 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 want, I, want some, I want something out of this. I want some kind of reward. I want something from this. But he says, the Father says in 31, he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. Now we'll go ahead and finish the passage, even though we're not really going to talk about 32. But he said, It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now that's the point that Jesus is trying to make to these Pharisees. He's saying these Pharisees quit acting like this towards your younger brother, these Jews that, that have been living in sin. That's the point, okay? Now that being said, let's go back just a minute. He's saying, this inheritance, you've always had it. You, uh, it. It was an inheritance that you never left. Here's what we can see about both of these sons. Both the younger son and the younger son wanted to earn their right standing with the father. They wanted to earn it. Remember how the younger son did it? 
He did it when he came into town. He said, I'm going to beg my dad and say, look, I've sinned. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Uh, let me uh, be one of your hired servants. And he was going to come to his father and he was going to work for his wages. He was going to work to, to earn his, his keep. And the older son had already been working to do what? To earn his keep. And both of them thought, if I work, if I serve, if I do enough, if I work hard enough, then I can earn my keep and I can earn acceptance by my dad. That's what both of these guys are doing. And yet the father, we find, is ready to receive them both solely on the basis of undeserved grace. Undeserved grace. In serving the Lord, it's, it's easy to become the older brother. Say, man, I've worked so hard for God. What's in it for me? You know, why, do I have a, why do I have to do all this hard work and that guy or that girl over there uh, you know, seem like they're not doing anything and they're wasting all of God's blessings? What am I getting out of this? The Christian worker can burn himself out and burn herself out working and striving in the church and to the point where it's no longer joyful. What do I get out of this? And here's some truth for us to consider this morning. What would Jesus have done if he were that elder brother? I want us to think about it for, for just a minute. What would Jesus have done elder brother? Maybe I should say, what has he done as the elder brother? Jesus, our true elder brother, upon seeing us fallen mankind, made in his his image, but we became the prodigal, we fell in sin, and in our prodigal, rebellious state against God, paid the price of bearing our shame and bearing our indignity. And bearing the cost. And then, and then we come to the Father begging just for the mercy to be called one of His servants. And the Father makes us not one of His servants, but one of His sons and His daughters. And Jesus, like the elder brother, had to pay an ultimate cost. Forgiveness is expensive. Forgiveness is expensive. That's, that's true in life. Just mark it. Anytime you forgive somebody, it's never free. Forgiveness is never free. Somebody has to pay. Somebody's got to pay the price. And Jesus, our elder brother, had to pay the ultimate price. And it's the Father's will that Jesus shall share His inheritance with us. But Jesus isn't like the older brother in the story who goes, Oh man, you know what, i got to share it with Him? No, Jesus gladly says, I will share my inheritance with you. I will do it. I will pay the price for you because it pleases the Father. And I will rejoice. Jesus rejoices that you have repented and submitted yourself to the Father. That's why, that's why Paul said in Romans 8, uh, that the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and the children and then heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with who? Christ. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him. Uh, suffer with Him so that we may be glorified also together with Him. We get to share His inheritance. We get to share His glory. And we did nothing to deserve it. He did it. We wasted our inheritance. Jesus comes in and says, Do-overs. I'm going to share my inheritance with you and I'm going to do it in gladness and in joy. And He does it because He loves the Father fully. Because He loves the Father, He loves He loves us. He doesn't say, Father, this isn't fair. You know, it's, you know, how come I had to die on the cross for this sinner? What am I getting out of it? No, it's, it was, Father, you love her, you love him, so do I. I will bear the burden of their sins so that they can be free. 
I had a, a visual. Go ahead and do that visual up there really quickly. Um, I stole this from uh, my friend Ben Durbin, who is uh, he's uh, the lead pastor teacher at the Bridge Church in Lettington. I stole it from him. I think he stole it from Tim Keller. I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but but until then, I'll just give Ben credit for it. Uh, but he, he basically says there's there's four different kinds of church people. Don't we all love getting categorized and shoved in boxes? Don't you love it when somebody says, oh, there's four kinds of people. Well, I'm going to do that to you. I'm going to shove you all in a box if that's okay. Uh, and maybe uh, maybe there's always uh, some combination of two or more of these uh, in each one of us in some respect. Uh, but uh, but he said, man, there's, there's four different kinds of people. There's four different kinds of people that show up in church. And the one, one type is... Uh, the top left-hand corner is the law-obeying, law-relying type. These are the rule keepers, right? These are the Pharisee types. These are the ones that are just... Some people are just good at following rules, you know? They're just good at it. They just... They're on top of their game. That they just It's just like they're born with this inherent, this innate ability to just follow rules and follow directions and follow orders. They're just good at it. Just Even just in the flesh, they're good at following rules, at least on the outside. On the outside, they're, they're rule keepers. And so they're very prideful in how well they keep the law and even make up other laws, right? This is the Pharisee types. And, and, but also, at the same time, they're very fearful and insecure because when you are relying on the law to, to give you acceptance before God, then you're constantly uh, looking at the law and saying, ooh, am I measuring up? Am I, am I hitting that mark? Am I hitting that line? Ooh, should I maybe pat on some more rules you know, to make sure you know, so I don't break that rule and so I don't cross that line? Maybe I should put another line over here so I don't cross that and so I don't accidentally cross this without even realizing it. I've got to stay within the lines. I've got to make sure to keep all these rules. And, and even that, it's only external, but it's never internal. And so these people are always so fearful. And even a Christian can be like this. Is my heart right? Am, am I, you know, is, is this going on? Is that, is that going on in my heart? And, oh, man. And they can just, we can just really, and it's a good thing to examine our hearts constantly, to examine our, ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, and to, to test ourselves, and to be constantly uh, submitting ourselves to the Lord and saying, Lord, search me. Search me and know my ways. Teach me, and, and you know, te- teach me to walk in, in your way everlasting. Um, but, but some... But when we are law-obeying and law-relying, if we rely on how well we can obey God's law in order to gain uh, acceptance by the Father, we're always going to be fearful, always going to be insecure. And sometimes a little bit touchy, you know, kind of sensitive when somebody, somebody criticizes you. Oh, hey, what, what are you talking about? Wait a minute. You know, th- these are the law-obeying, law-relying types. This is what the older son was. That's what the older son was. Very touchy whenever you see somebody else getting grace. Like, wait a minute, I, I've been working. And how come I'm not getting the grace that that guy's getting? That doesn't make any sense. Law obeying, law relying. Another type is, on the top right hand corner, is the law disobeying, but law relying. These are those that aren't good rule keepers. They, they rely on the law. They look at the law and say, this is what I need in order to be accepted by God. But they can't follow it. These are the kinds of people that, that you all have talked to these types, and I, I talk to these, these types all the time, the ones that say, well, I'll get in the church. I, I know I need to, I ought to, but I, I got some things in my life that I need to straighten out first. And once I get these things straightened out, then I'll, then I'll come. And what that tells me is that, oh, I see, 
So you're relying on the law. You're going to try to fix yourself. You're going to try to make yourself fit some kind of standard into some kind of box. You're going to try to make yourself holy before you come to Jesus. I see. So, so this is a person who, who depends upon the law in order to find acceptance before God, but they know they can't meet the mark. Now these people tend to be more tolerant of others. Even if you can't get them into the church door, they're more tolerant of, of others. But there's lots of self-hatred. There's lots of guilt. And um, they often try to, to avoid spiritual conversations. You know, and, and like I, you know, they, when you start to bring up the topic, you know, oh, let's talk about Cardinals baseball or whatever. You know, oh, Cardinals baseball. Oh, did you know such and such player was a Christian? He loves Jesus. But you know, I, I don't know. But but or they uh, another thing is they they won't commit. It's hard to get them to. Uh, you know, they might come to church, but their attendance is very irregular, and their service is irregular, and they're inconsistent. And they, their their weeks go like this. One week, oh, I'm feeling really good. I think I've been obeying God today. I think I'm going to go to church, and I'm really going to enjoy this. And the next week, oh, man, I just bombed. I tanked this week, man. I yelled at my kids, and, and, uh, and I said something nasty to my wife. I said a cuss word at work, and, uh, and uh, you know, I stole a buck out of the... You know, I, you know I, I've done awful this week, and, and then the guilt, and then how do I want to go to church? I just... You know, I don't want to be around that, that atmosphere. Law disobeying, but law relying. The third type is law disobeying, not law relying. These are the, the secular types, um, the types that don't, you know, they, they, don't, they don't believe in God or they don't believe that, that they should have to follow any of God's uh, commands and, and they want to uh, kind of ignore all that. They ignore and they buck any kind of, uh, any kind of visage of um, God's standard for their lives. They, they kind of build up their own kind of crutch, their own kind of standard for their own life. They believe that God is a, is a kind of crutch. Um, they're very self-righteous. They have this standard. They say, here's how I live. Here's my morality. And I live up to it. Sometimes they do, and a lot of times they don't. A lot of times they're, they're even breaking their own standard of ethic. And they're often what we might call the de-churched. Church and what that means is, and we see this a lot, and we were just talking about this a minute ago. This is often the, the, the prodigal type that grows up in church. They, they've, they've been, a lot of times, they were law obeying, law relying types for so long. They were surrounded by it. Their parents were that way. Their people in their church were that way. And they were trying, they were white knuckling it, trying to be good law keepers, good rule keepers, and trying to please God so that they can get into heaven one day. And they were doing it so much until they finally snapped. They broke and they said, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. And in their heart, there was absolutely no, no desire for, the Lord to be, uh, for Jesus to be their Lord. There was no sense that God was their Father, but just that God is a, is a vicious dictator. And they left the church. They left Christ. They never really knew Him to, to begin with. And they, they are now what we would call the de-churched of the world. And you'll find a few of them. Ask somebody their story. And eventually, sometimes you'll see that come out. Not law disobeying and not law relying. But finally, the last one is those who are law-obeying, but not law-relying. This is what we've been talking about. This is what Jesus, our elder brother, that's uh, what Jesus calls us to be. We obey God out of joy, and out of freedom, and out of a sense of sonship, out of a sense of adoption. God is my Father. We don't do it out of fear. We do it out of confidence in our sonship. And those who are law-obeying and not law-relying tend to be sympathetic and compassionate and gracious towards those when God shows others grace. So maybe maybe you find that you fit one of these four squares. Maybe some combination of the four. Maybe there's a fifth square and I don't know about it. You can come tell me about it later. I don't know. 
But I would say this, wherever you're at, let go of the guilt. Remind yourself, I belong to God. Not because of what I'm doing, what, what I'm doing right or what I'm doing wrong, but because of what He's already done. And when we can really grasp this reality, as the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His sons and daughters, this truth will burst forth in us in a free willingness and a desire to serve and obey God. Not, a, not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude and out of joy. So what's, what's your service coming out of? What's it coming out of? Now, are we called to walk in obedience to the Father? Absolutely, but it's a joyful thing. It's a, it's a we can get up in the morning and say, Lord, show me how to obey you today. We open up our Bibles and say, Lord, what can I learn about you and about your character and about your nature and about you as a father, about what you expect from me? Teach me this, this stuff. Teach me how to learn this stuff. Man, bathe yourself in the Word and then do it as a joyful, uh, as a son. Um, uh, be a learner. Be a joyful learner. I mean, you had some opportunities there. Uh, I know on Wednesday nights, some, some Wednesday nights, you guys have got some Bible studies that are going to be made available. And Pastor Mike, I know, has been encouraging you all to get involved in that. Men, get involved in that stuff. And come in and say, look, I'm just a fellow learner like the rest of you. I'm a fellow son, a child of God like the rest of you. And I want to learn what it means to obey and walk in obedience to my Father with joy and to serve Him with joy. You know, where do I sign up? Where do I start? What do I got to do? Let's, let's learn this stuff together. Let's do it together. Let that be your fuel. Let your sonship, your daughtership be your fuel and your motivation to keep serving with gusto because you are already accepted into the family. Alright. Psalms 51 says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit and then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted unto thee. Um, that kind of rolls out in King James because that's how I memorized it as a kid. But um, if you're here and you're going, look, I've lost my joy. i got no joy. It's gone. Um, pray what, what David prayed. His prayer was a prayer as, a, as one of the, as, you know, he knew what he did. He'd sinned uh, incredibly with Bathsheba. So he begins to look, pray to the Lord. Lord, I, I know I'm your son. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with your free spirit. And then, he knew that, man, Lord, as you begin to restore my joy, then I can begin to serve you with gladness, and uh, then I can teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David kind of saw himself as a bit of a preacher. Uh, and whatever your gift is, maybe you're going, I can't serve with joy. Begin to pray that with zeal. Lord, restore to me my joy. My joy is gone. Remind me of my sonship and my daughtership, and help me to find joy in that. Um, so that's what I would say. Um, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to go ahead and have uh, Steve, we'll go ahead and, and come on up and, and close this in a song this morning. And um, Lord, we thank you today for the gospel. Um, thank you for your, your son, or that you sent Jesus, who is our, our elder brother, uh, who is the, the first fruits of, of all creation. Uh, first fruits of resurrection, Lord, you sent him as as our example, um, and Lord, he showed us what it means to walk in the joy of the Spirit, to walk in the joy of sonship, and then to walk in obedience uh, to you out of joy and not out of guilt, not of, of a sense of slavery. And so, Lord, I just pray that you might teach me that. Teach me not to, to serve out of compulsion, but out of joy.
Not as a slave, but as a, as a son. Not because I have to in the flesh, but because I want to and I desire to. And because I can by the power of the Spirit. So help us to be able to rely on the Spirit today. And go with us today in, this, in these truths and help us to put these into application. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.